our last episode, we met Boaz and Ruth, a splash of joy in the middle of cesspool judges. We now return to the cesspool in progress, the judges cycle, where every man does what's right in his own eyes. Allow me to introduce you to two more judges before we hit rock bottom with two tragic stories. When the Israelites are in deep trouble from the Ammonites, God raises up Jephthah, the Gileadite. Jephthah is mostly known for a rash vow he made before going into battle against Ammon. He told God, If you give me victory, the first thing that comes out of my house, I shall offer to you, Lord, as a burnt offering. He's victorious in battle, and what should come out to meet him first when he comes home? His only daughter. Daddy, how did it go? In the tragic verses that follows, it appears he embraced the Canaanite practice of child sacrifice, which God was clear, I hate. The tragic thing here is, God in the family rules had already given instruction on what to do with rash vows. While vows were to be taken very seriously, rash vows could be repented of and a sacrifice for sin made. I truly hope Jephthah saw the light, but the text suggests he didn't. Next judge up on our judges' roller coaster list is Samson. The Philistines are oppressing Israel at the time. We're told of Manoah and his wife from the tribe of Dan. An angel appears to Manoah's wife and says she's going to have a little boy and he's to be a Nazarite. In the family rules, God laid out what a Nazarite was. It was someone dedicated to God for a period of time. In this case, it was to be for life. The three main rules for a Nazarite no touching the dead. He represented the God of the living. Don't cut your hair, probably to identify you as a person devoted to God under a Nazarite vow. And third, don't drink any alcohol. We saw with both Noah and Lot what kind of trouble men get into when they drink too much. When Manoah's wife explains the visit and the announcement, Manoah wants that person back to confirm You'll read about that person coming back, and when Manoah makes a burnt offering sacrifice, the visitor, an angel, wicks up the flames and the smoke. That would be something. They have a baby boy, and they name him Samson. Samson might make the top ten Old Testament Sunday school stories for children, mainly because of his great strength and what God did through that strength to deliver God's people from the Philistines. What they didn't tell you in Sunday school were some of the details. Samson was a modern guy. What he wanted, he took. One day he noticed a certain Philistine woman. He went to his parents and said, Get her for me. God told them to marry among their own people. Details, details. On a trip to see his lady-in-waiting, he reaches into the carcass of a dead lion to grab some honey. Remember, Nazarites were not to touch anything dead. Again, details. He's a gambler. He wagers 30 changes of clothing with his Philistine buddies, betting them they can't solve one of his riddles. His Philistine girlfriend nags the answer to his riddle out of him. To pay off his gambling debt, he goes and kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes. You can't kill 30 people without, wait for it, touching dead bodies. After going home to his parents to pout a while, he comes back to find his girlfriend. Her Philistine father has given her to another man in marriage. So, Samson burns down their fields. To retaliate, the Philistine village goes to an Israelite village and attacks. When they ask what their problem is, the Philistines reply, We want Samson. The quick story is, 
Samson turns himself into them and gets tied up. When the Philistines come to get him, he breaks free from the ropes, grabs the jawbone of a donkey, and kills a thousand more Philistines with supernatural strength. Soon another Philistine lady pops up, Delilah. The Philistines want her to find out where Samson's amazing strength comes from. Over the course of days, she begins to nag at him. If you love me, you tell me. As you read the story, each time he tells her a lie, he tiptoes closer to the truth. Finally, he tells her about the Nazarite vow, and his great strength comes from his long hair that's never been cut. It certainly didn't come from him obeying, don't touch the dead. She gives him a head rub, he falls asleep, and she hacks off his hair. The Philistines come, capture him, put out his eyes, and throw him in a Philistine jail. Every once in a while, they'll pull him out at public celebrations or worship services to their god and make sport of him, the eyeless buffoon of Israel. I'm sure the Philistines had a few things to say about the wussy god of Israel he represented as well. Apparently, a few years of being the buffoon pass, Samson's hair grows back out. At a major festival, with Philistine dignitaries from all over gathered, they summon Samson to come and entertain them. Samson asks his guard escorts to let him rest against the pillars of the temple where the party is being held. Then Samson asks God, Give me my strength back one more time so that I may avenge your great name. Well, that's not exactly what he said. The first part of that is right. Give me my great strength back one more time. But the second part was to avenge my eyes. It's all about me. God returns his strength and Samson is able to push down two supporting pillars in the temple, bringing down the house. Judges tells us he killed more at his death than he did all during his life and some of the most powerful Philistine rulers in the land. As we near the end of the book of Judges, the writer stops talking about the judges and starts talking about the condition of the people. He gives two stories, Micah the Ephraimite and the tribe of Benjamin. First, Micah the Ephraimite. Micah steals a thousand pieces of silver from his mother. She curses the thief. Then Micah says, Mom, I'm the thief. Oh, son, that's okay. Let's take the silver and make an idol. This gives Micah the Ephraimite an idea. I'm going to set up my own little church here on the farm. So he sets aside a special room with the idol and makes an ephod to determine God's will. Now mind you, he's in Ephraim, which is where the tabernacle is at Shiloh, probably only a few hours away. Details. One day, Micah hits the mother load. A seminary student comes by his little farm. That's right, a young Levite. Really, with nothing to do, he's looking for a place to land. Micah says, Hey, stay here. Be my priest. Check it out. I've got a ready-made church right here for you. Promise room, board, and a little spending money. The seminary student settles in. We're then told that five spies from the tribe of Dan came by Micah's little farm. When they saw the priests there, they asked, Would you please ask God if our journey will be successful? Remember, these folks were only a few hours from Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. Details. The spies go back to their Danite camp, mobilize the Danites, and they head north to attack a city. As the tribe goes by Micah's farm, they've got an idea. Wouldn't it be nice if their city had its own church? They go to Micah's farm, 
and take the idol and ephod. When the seminary student objects, they said, Hey, God's calling you to a bigger church, a whole tribe. Come on. And he goes. Micah hears and comes unglued. He approaches the Danite tribe about their theft. It's like a scene from The Godfather. Hey, calm down. These men are really trigger-happy. You could end up dead. Guess you could say they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So Micah goes home. It was right in the eyes of the Danite tribe. Unwilling or unable to take their own territory, the Danites then attack and murder an entire city of unsuspecting people. Then we hit the story of the tribe of Benjamin, the bottom of the judge's barrel. This is your official yuck alert. If you haven't listened to episode 27 on the first yuck alert regarding Sodom, you might want to do that first. If you've just eaten, you may want to wait and listen to the rest of this when your stomach has settled a bit. You've been warned. Here goes. A Levite of the tribe of Benjamin has a concubine. That's right. A sort of wife slash mistress. She runs away to Bethlehem. He goes to retrieve her. When he gets to her home, he's delayed five days by a zealous father who doesn't want her to leave. We call it a Norwegian goodbye where I live. On day five, after lunch, he finally grabs his concubine and heads out of town. It's nearing dark when they reach Jabus, which is Jerusalem. The Jebusites occupied it. The Levite is not willing to stay in a pagan town for the night, so he decides we'll continue on and get to a Jewish town. A few hours later, as darkness sets in, they arrive at Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin. They're planning to sleep in the city square at night until an old man comes in from the field and urges them to come to his house. Some wicked men of the city surround the house and call out to the old man to send the man out for sex. Again, you may want to listen to episode 27. This time, the man sends out his concubine. In the morning, he finds her dead on the front step. The quick story is, he cuts his concubine up into pieces and FedExes the pieces to the rest of the tribes of Israel, along with an explanatory note of what's happened in Gibeah of Benjamin. Enraged, the Israelites assemble and demand the perpetrators be handed over for punishment. Gibeah and the larger tribe of Benjamin tell them to mind their own business and get lost. What follows is three days of bloodbath. Tens of thousands of Israelite soldiers drop in the first two days of battle, as Benjamin and its marksmen prevail. But on the third day, Benjamin is almost entirely exterminated. The entire tribe. Stirred up, the men of Israel had made a vow, we'll never give our daughters in marriage to Benjamite men. After the battle, the Israelites discover there are 600 Benjamin soldiers who are survivors. They realize one of God's tribes, Benjamin's tribe, will be completely wiped from the face of the earth because of their vow, will never give them wives for marriage. But this is the time of the judges, so they can figure something out that's right in their own eyes. They ask if any cities didn't heed the call to battle against Benjamin. One city, Jabesh Gilead, didn't report. So they go to the city and kill everyone but the young women. These are their own people who failed to show up for battle. Who knows, maybe they didn't even get the message. Or maybe they did what was right in their own eyes. They find 400 unmarried young ladies in Jabesh Gilead 
and they give them to 400 of the Benjamite survivors. But that leaves 200 Benjamite men with no brides. So they come up with the second plan. Though Israelite fathers had pledged, we'll never give our daughters in marriage to Benjamite men. Nobody ever pledged they couldn't be taken, like kidnapped. So that's what they instructed the 200 Benjamite men to do. At a special holiday for young unmarried women, the 200 Benjamite men, like cavemen, waited in the woods, then jumped out and grabbed themselves a bride. They kidnapped them. If you're interested in God's laws, kidnapping carried the death penalty. Details. Judges abruptly ends with this verse. The theme verse. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Indeed. That statement is a summary statement, but it also sets us up for our next book, 1 Samuel, the 330 years of loose confederacy where the people of Israel didn't follow God, but followed their own whims, has not been a smashing success. These incorrigible children of Israel need a parent, a strong leader. God has one more judge in mind, and more than a judge, a godly prophet. His last-ditch attempt to get their attention and turn their eyes back toward him as their leader. We'll meet this last judge and prophet in our next word picture.